0: If we ain't all free, ain't
2: none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison.
3: Folks, welcome back. You're still listening to The Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. We are now in overtime. Uh, where we are online only, none of this plays on any radio station, so we are free from the shackles of the FCC censors. Um, even though we don't really take advantage of that a whole lot, uh, we're pretty we're pretty clean on this show. But
4: we- yeah, I did say a cuss word earlier. Mm. I'm sorry
3: but we could if we wanted to because we're now only online. So Yeah. uh, It was was
4: Kay Ivy, man. She does mm. make me cuss sometimes. Sorry.
3: Yeah. That was crazy. That was a crazy comment. Um, You just got to wonder how much time she puts in working. Like, even just meetings. Like, I wonder if you add it all of her meetings or any other paperwork or anything that she does, any talking speeches. I wonder if it would add up to 40 hours in a week. The guess would be no, but I don't know who knows. And then even, even then, you know, I'm being pretty charitable by counting meetings as work, but anyway, uh, we've got some great stuff lined up for you folks. Uh, Jim Cramer is continuing to wet himself about Sean Payne and, uh, uh, Patrick bet David, we learned some more stuff about him last week from our friends over at Left Reckoning, so we're going to talk about that. Uh, but first up, we're going to talk about uh, some college students in Arizona organizing with the Arizona Education Association uh, and uh, uh, because uh, they want some better stuff. So... <laughs>
4: i I think i think it's a little cooler than that actually oh
3: it's cooler than that
4: yes all right yes uh i i gotta say as a former educator i am really uh appreciative of these folks who are doing this organizing because i remember what it was like to be a student teacher and as a student teacher you're doing an internship that is unpaid Mm. and uh Nobody takes care of those bills for you, right, right? while you're a student teacher. Uh, you still are responsible for all that. So Your bank anyway, won't
3: let you uh, not pay the mortgage. Right, yeah. Taxes.
4: You can't just call up the bank and be like, hey, actually, I'm doing my internship right now. Like, I really got to, you know, plan these lessons and, and uh, grade these tests. Like, sorry. That didn't, it didn't work that way. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I thought it was really cool uh, to hear about this organizing happening in Arizona. So this let's, let's bring on uh Johnny and I think Johnny actually has uh some other folks with him. So welcome to the Valley Labor Report, y'all.
5: Thank y'all, thank y'all. um before we get into introduce ourselves specifically, um, Jess, did you wanna kind of break down our uh, overarching uh union that what we represent and what is the uh-
6: Absolutely. Hello, I'm Jessica Bailey, and I am an aspiring educator from Virginia. Um, We are part of the National Education Association, the NEA, which is the largest labor union in in the country, um, which is 3,000 million members. Um, And we are aspiring educators, um, college students, university students, preparing to enter the field of education. Um, So we are a part of that NEA family and um, we are getting ready to go into classrooms as educators um, someday and um, just excited to be here and discuss with you all about what we're planning and hoping to bring forth in the coming um, months and years.
4: Absolutely, yeah. So I, I'm curious if, if y'all will all just kind of introduce yourself and tell us what got you involved in activism.
5: Yeah, so I think I can start off. My name is uh, Johnny Otero. I'm from uh, Arizona. Use he, him pronouns. And um, really started getting into uh, labor organizing when I started hearing from my ancestors. About how they organized. Um, my grandpa and uh, you know my family were very involved with the um, United Farm Workers movement, and so always hearing those stories, you know, as a Chicano about you know the labor movement has always been you know in my upbringing, and so as an educator, you know, joining my union was the first thing that I ever did as an aspiring educator, and so I saw the injustices happening around paid student teaching, you know, at my university, I didn't see enough people that looked like me, that talked like me. And so I saw this issue as very much, um, something to, um, work around for working class, uh, BIPOC
4: specifically. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that, Johnny. Who else we got on the call this morning? Uh, because I know we've got uh someone who just joined. Uh Jalen, well, would you mind introducing yourself?
7: Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. Hi, my name is Jalen Bridgeforth. Um, I am no longer an aspiring educator. I just graduated May twenty from Congratulations University. <laughs> Thank you. Um, with a degree in elementary education and a minor in political science. Um I've always been very into like activism and movements and cultural social awareness and civil disobedience. Um, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, which is like the home of civil disobedience. Um, So it's always been a part of my life, what I do. And, you know, it's just the culture I grew up around. If you see an injustice, you stand up, you stop it, you do what you need to do um and so when I got to my senior year to my internship when they told us that we weren't going to be paid for the work we were doing um it just kind of brought me back to like all those lessons I learned as a child of like if you see something is wrong do you stop it um and it was wrong that we weren't being paid for our labor so that's kind of what got me into this particular movement.
4: Yeah, that is awesome and, and glad to see a uh, Southerner on the call as well. That's really cool. Uh, and Jessica, you you introduced yourself a little bit, but I'm curious also what, what got you, you know, involved in this organizing?
6: Um, I come from Virginia and as an aspiring educator who's Asian American, um, there isn't much representation in my state. And I just saw a big hole in space for representation that needed to be brought up there Um, and bringing forth that activism spirit in my my heart that i want to do more i want to um, be be there and have a seat at the table just brought me to be part of this team and seeing the need um, for being paid paid student teaching is really really a big deal Um, and needs to be paid attention to in Virginia. And I just saw that as something that I needed to step up and be part of and be part of this action and be part of this space, Um, especially as an aspiring educator that is Asian and there isn't much, um, many aspiring educators that come from my community and um, just being part of the change.
4: I think that is so cool. I, I just want to congratulate all three of you before we talk more about this campaign, uh, because it can be tough to get involved. It, it can be tough to try to make a difference. Uh, but everyone who, you know, feels it in their heart to become an educator does so because they want to make a difference in their community. They want to have a positive impact on young people, which really, when you positively impact young people, you're you're impacting an entire generation. You're you're really uh, shaping the world in which we live in. And so, I find that educators are uniquely positioned to get into the work of organizing and activism because because of that drive that that we all have to try to make that difference. Uh, but often, folks don't take that plunge uh, because it is scary and it's, and i really really applaud y'all uh, particularly as young people and one of the things that we try to do on this show is make sure that we're having dialogue between different types of folks that are in the labor movement and that's you know in all of its categories uh you know from race to age to gender uh to industry and you know geography because the working class is so diverse There's so many pieces of labor, uh, and and the folks who do the labor in our world. Uh, so anyway, I wanted to just say all that before we get into the campaign. So talk to us about paid student teaching. Why is this an important issue? Uh, and what have y'all been doing to organize around this issue?
7: I can talk a little bit about that. Um, So, paid student teaching is a huge issue nationwide. It's an egregious um, misservice to aspiring educators across the nation. So, every state is a little bit different, um, but I'll tell you about Maryland how we do it. So, in the state of Maryland, to be certified as an educator, you have to spend 180 days inside of a classroom. So that's an entire school year.
1: 180
7: right. days. We start doing that process um, pretty early on. So like our sophomore, junior year, we'll maybe spend like five days here, five days there, just, you know, starting to whittle down that number. Then in your senior year, you should only have 120 days left. And you spend those 120 days in a classroom full-time. You are a teacher. You have a co-teacher, um, someone that's been teaching for, in Maryland, the minimum is five years to become a co-teacher. Um, and so you have someone there, but oftentimes your co-teacher isn't being paid for letting you be in their classroom. So they're not very interested in having you there. Um, I've had some of my friends, like when their co-teacher found out they were getting an intern, they just like, were like, okay, I'm not gonna do my job. You're the teacher all um, right so mm. 120 days you're in a classroom five days a week you're going to parent teacher conferences you going to back to school night you're an educator at this point mm. but you're not being paid for any of that time mm. and then because you are a teacher you can't really pick up another job so um right. you still have classwork on top of this also <laughs> you still have to take your cert- uh, certificate exams everything and like they tell you beforehand, like your professors, almost every aspiring man I've talked to has had the same conversation with their professor or their professor says, don't take another job your senior year. You're going to be so stressed out. You're going to be so burnt out. But if I'm not being paid for the job that I'm doing and I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth, right. I have no way to live. I can't survive. Like it was getting to like, it was getting to the point where I was like going to my friend's house so I could have dinner with me. Cause I can't, I can't buy myself a meal with money. I don't have a job, and I still have to afford a place to live. I don't drive, so I was taking Ubers every day with no money to back it up. But if I leave and I don't do this internship, I don't get to be an educator. Right was the problem that me and other aspiring educators were occurring across the nation.
4: Yeah, I. I... I really uh, resonate with that because during my time as an intern, um, what I was doing was working at a sports bar. And so I was working like some late nights, but then still having to turn around and get up early in the morning and do my teacher role. Uh, And it was just very, very difficult. And I mean, it is a struggle because, like you said, Academically, it's really best that you just focus on the internship and all the extra that you're still doing alongside it, your portfolio or testing or whatever it may be. You know, that makes the most academic sense. But practically for most of us coming from working class backgrounds, like how are we going to survive? Right. I mean, there's student loans. Uh and so you've got that option. Maybe it's enough. Um, and, and of course that gets you into a whole nother scenario in terms of a debt sentence that's gonna follow you around throughout your uh your adulthood. And so there's a lot there and and I'm really glad to hear that personal testimony because um so many of us who've gone through that have those stories and, and the difficulty of just surviving that semester or that year or however long it is in your particular state so you know having heard that uh johnny i'm really curious about the organizing y'all have done around this and you know how have y'all been kind of getting this story out there and getting people engaged to take action around this issue
5: great right. and so uh just recently we started uh meeting nationally where we uh we have roughly around 20 plus our states or so, you know, meeting, um, trying to get organized, trying to start the conversation. Um, but at the moment here in Arizona, we're uh, we're talking to our legislators. Um, one of the representatives, Senator, um actually Senator Mendez, um, he agreed to sponsor a bill where um, you know, call the Teachers Mortage Act where we're gonna to stop this teacher shortage right we all know it's a retention uh issue um but we've seen great success in other states um like michigan maryland from jaylyn um i don't know if jay if you wanted to have pop back on this space and talk about your success in maryland i know uh their state is something that we all look at nationally to target and see how do we organize this who do we talk to and so
1: maryland was a great um, state and, um, starting those conversations. Yeah. I'd love to hear some more about, uh,
4: what's been going on in Maryland. If, if that's possible.
7: Always. So, um, I really do not like not having my way. Um, I want everything done my way. There is no highway option. (laughs) <laughs> so when I found out that I was not getting paid I like became the worst kind of person I complained to everyone that would like listen to me even if you didn't want to listen to me I was complaining and then eventually I just complained to the right people and one of my state organizers with the Maryland State Education Association um, which is an affiliate of the National Education Association she asked me she was like well do you want to do something about it it was like, yeah, I want to do something about it. I'm not getting paid. Mm. Um, and so that kind of started uh, a statewide campaign for um, what we call the Maryland Teacher Shortage Act, which is basically um, a plan put in place to remedy the teacher shortage that we're experiencing in, the, in Maryland. And part of that act is to encourage more people to go into education. So it was a really long, hard fight. Um, But we talked to our legislators. We talked to anyone that would listen. We started petitions. We were going to the state capitol twice a week. Um, We really were just talking to anyone that would have our ear um, about why this was a problem, why this was an issue. And we were eventually able to win. Um, It just went into effect July 1st, paid student teaching in the state of Maryland. um, Wow, congratulations. Thank you, it's so great. (laughs) It's so great to like have this and to just know like, I'm sorry, other aspiring educators in Maryland don't have to go through what I went through because my senior year was horrible. Mm. I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice a little bit.
1: My senior year was
7: horrible. Um, Like I was struggling every day. I couldn't figure out like what I was going to do. And so I'm happy to know like, other students in Maryland don't do that. So with the Maryland Shortage Act provisions, um, if you go to a college with an accredited um, education program in Maryland that receives 40% Pell Grant in the student population, so 40% of the student population receives a Pell Grant, you as an aspiring educator will receive a $20,000 stipend to cover expenses your senior year. As well as that twenty thousand dollars stipend, um, you are. Uh, we also expanded um, the Maryland Teaching Fellow Scholarship. Um, so basically, we the state manufactured this new scholarship that will cover room, board, all other expenses, housing, uh, transportation, as well as tuition at every single college campus in the state of Maryland. If you um, go to if you are an aspiring educator and you pledge to work at a title one school for however many years you win the scholarship. So if I applied for the scholarship for three years, I teach in a title one school for three years. Right. So as well as the stipend and expanding that scholarship, we're really, we're working hard to get the aspiring educators in Maryland taken care of.
4: Yeah. I th- That is fantastic to hear. And, you know, I know the work, continues and there's more to to work on there, but um, the teacher recruitment and retention challenge can be solved, right? It's solvable problems. And this is one of those solvable problems uh, because it is keeping, it is a barrier to success. It's a barrier for folks to complete the program, uh, to enter the program, right? And, and um, you know, something that Jessica mentioned earlier is about you know there're not a lot of educators that look like her all right and it, and it is so important that we have educators who do reflect the student population right and as you mentioned not everyone's born with a silver spoon
8: mm.
4: right and and that shouldn't be a requirement to enter in to of all professions the teaching profession uh and so but i you know one of my favorite things about what you just told me though is you were asked the question, "Do you want to do something about it?" Right, that classic organizer question of like, "Okay, so you, you know, I've heard, I've heard your complaints, I've heard these issues. Are, right, are you ready? Do you want to do something about it?" Uh, and it's so cool to me uh, that the three of you, young people, have all said yes, I do. Um, and so, uh, I wanted to give uh, Jessica and Johnny a chance to jump back in the conversation and just kind of share any any final words that y'all have about this campaign or about your experience organizing around this campaign?
6: Um, I was going to talk about, like in Virginia, I come from a state that it's been all about collective bargaining. Our state just won back the rights to collective bargain. And so this paid t- student teaching conversation has been coming up for the past three years, several years, and I've been talking about it over and over and over, and no one's really listened to the conversation. And so I've learned recently that my state is actually um, trying to um, introduce some legislation that could hopefully help bring student teaching to Virginia. So it's just moving forward little bit by little bit and inching it forward um, to have those conversations with people and just bring up this issue um, because it is a barrier to to this profession. It's a barrier to education and to us. Um, I know some schools, um, not necessarily specifically in Virginia, but their colleges or universities require them, the aspiring educators or student teachers to sign a contract or sign a waiver that says that they will not work during their student teaching placement. And that is a major barrier as well. Mm. Um, How are you supposed to live if you can't work and have money to provide for um, your expenses during the time that you're student teaching? Um, And that's a big, big piece that has been a barrier, at least for some aspiring educators that I've seen in Virginia as well. Um, And I've just been very active in making my voice heard to spread the news and being part of this campaign is helping to move those conversations forward in my state and get people to listen, get people to hear that this is an issue that needs to be paid attention to. Um, So I'm very excited to be part of this team and be part of this um, organizing to start this campaign um, across the country, especially in Virginia.
4: That's awesome. Awesome. Uh, Johnny, and also, uh, if y'all could let us know uh, before we wrap here, how folks can get involved, how folks can get plugged in, Uh, you know, particularly I'm thinking about educators, but for anyone who wants to offer their solidarity.
5: And yeah, so I just wanted to bring up uh, in this space about some current bandages that we have seen in student teaching. Um, we have seen other states, you know, other districts, um, put a sort of like infected band aid on this issue, right? Where um, we see shortcuts to becoming teachers. You know, we see yes. Um, yes. student teachers now becoming teacher of record, meaning that they don't have a mentor. Mm-hmm. And um, am I am I okay? Am I lagging at all?
4: You a little bit. Yeah, yeah you're I'm lagging good. a little bit. Sorry about that.
5: Is it better if I turn off my camera?
4: Sure. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Probably.
5: <clears throat> all right. Cool. But no, yeah. I was just saying that. Um, you know, these shortcuts uh, effectively. Um, you know, becoming the teacher of record it hurts students, it hurts schools, and it hurts the educators that work there. Um, you know, we're we're less prepared when we're then all of a sudden put into you know the classroom as the teacher of record. So ensuring that you know we do have different uh, modes of student teaching. So um, like Jay said, you know, in Maryland we have um, I believe it's 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 a stipend. It's not quite a residency. But I know the NEA has uh, lobbied for residency programs. Um, you know, statistically, they've shown that if you are in a residency program, you are 95% more likely to be an educator in the next five years. And so, like talking about like that teacher shortage, right? Like that—that that is one way. Um, you know, if we invest in teaching and teachers early on, I mean, it'll pay out in the long run. Um, so. I simply like to call it, you know, investing and solving the exploitation at the pre exploitation, right, because student teaching is pre exploitation. Um, but other than that, for folks, you know, joining online that are wanting to maybe you're an aspiring educator, a future teacher, you're in college, um, I would say any advice uh, is to uh, join your union and start the conversation around all work, no pay. And uh, let's get paid student teaching solved. Um, What else do y'all have uh, to share, Uh, Jess and Jay involved? I would just say. Uh oh, did we lose y'all?
1: I'm
6: still here. I didn't know if okay. Jay sure, was
4: sure. If you want to just Hi, give, us, uh, give us give uh, us the plug in terms of is there a social media set up yet, or is there any particular way um, to kind of connect with y'all? Because obviously y'all have an organizing team going on right now. So for anyone who is an aspiring educator, how could they get plugged in with y'all?
6: Um, We have a um, group in our um, Aspiring Ed program, Uh, we have a group meet formed, but um, my first um, advice would be to get um, connected with your local chapters um, at your university. So you could go to NEA.org and um, search to find um, information there. Where your local chapter might be, um, but we also do have a group GroupMe um, going and um, a Google form that we have um, been sharing with our aspiring educators um, to get involved. We don't have any social media up and running yet, but our plan for our group and team is to come up with a, um, a packet so that we could help push those materials and flyers and information out about paid student teaching and a guide for us as aspiring educators to start um, advocating at our state level for for this. Um,
4: yeah, but I can I put think,
6: information, I guess, for our group in the
4: Yeah, no, the I, I think that's, that's perfect. Uh, folks should get linked up with their chapter uh, at the local level, but uh, y'all are working on getting this campaign really on the ground, you know, off the ground, and and get some more momentum going here. And I gotta say, I think that's a great idea. Put together a grassroots toolkit kind of thing, uh, and I have no doubt there are some good NSO brothers and sisters, you know, working for your NEA affiliates who will be happy to help y'all with that. So, uh, you know, as a former NSO member for over five years, shout out to all of my former brothers and sisters who are working for NEA and the NEA Affiliates. Uh, I have no doubt they'll help you with that. And so really excited to hear this from y'all. Uh, I love to see folks getting involved early on um, because this is a real issue that's affecting real people uh, for all the reasons y'all explained. So thank you so much for joining us and thank you for, for putting a, uh, fighting the good fight.
5: Thank y'all so much for having us. Y'all
4: have a good day. Appreciate it. Y'all too.
6: Yes. Thank you so much for this opportunity. This is my first time doing a podcast, so hopefully I did a good job.
4: Uh, Thank (laughs) you. Thank you for joining us. Seriously, we appreciate it. Yeah. Y'all take care.
3: All right, folks, Uh, really appreciate that. And that is I mean, that's really, really great news Um, and looking for more wins on that front. Yeah, uh, it's a
4: it's a great campaign. Um, I think it's going to be something that resonates with folks, whatever Mm -hmm. state you're in. Um, So that's cool to hear what uh, what's been going on in Maryland and, um, you know, hope to see some some more momentum. And I'd love to see folks in Alabama working on it, because, like I said, it's something I experienced. It's something that every educator goes through. And, um, most of us are, are, you know, it's a struggle. So yeah, it's a great campaign. Great idea. Um, love to see young people get involved.
3: Let's talk about yellow again. Uh, you'll remember that, uh, yellow was, is a less than truckload freight company that, we spoke to Teddy Ostro about before it went bankrupt, and since then it has actually gone bankrupt. And exactly as we predicted, the, not only the company, but a lot of people in corporate media, um, including right here at home, uh longtime listeners of the show will recognize Scott Butram, uh publisher, owner, boss, capitalist of the Trustville Tribune. Uh he was celebratory of the 22,000 Teamsters losing their jobs uh, because he hates union workers, because he hates it when uh, workers have any sort of say over their workplace. He also, here's a fun fact, uh, when it was announced that 74 AT&T workers were voluntarily recognized uh, by AT&T to unionize with the CWA, he said something like, congratulations to AT&T customers whose phones will now be subject to the whims of a union showing that he had no idea that most AT&T workers are unionized already uh you know I mean this is just a guy who routinely routinely shows himself to be completely ignorant about issues facing working people and belligerent and uh you know uh just kind of wicked in the way that he views working people and the outcomes that he works for working people uh, that have just the tiniest bit of backbone and don't absolutely fillet people like him. But anyway, that's been going on in, in the corporate media outside of Alabama as well, saying that Yellow's bankruptcy what is due to the Teamsters. And Sean O'Brien has been fighting back against that narrative. And here is him on Fox Business... Addressing some of these allegations, let's listen to this clip.
6: Um, I have to ask you: Do you feel
4: responsible for the 22,000 Teamster jobs that are being lost because Yellow fired for cha- uh, filed? Excuse me for, for Chapter 11 on Sunday.
9: No, not at all. I mean, our members have given back $5 billion in concessions since 2009 and three other times uh, since 2009. Yellow's always come back to the well looking for more and more out of our members. Uh, And it just got to a point where they were so mismanaged. Uh, It's always easy to blame someone else, and uh, that's okay. But at the end of the day, the facts don't lie, and uh, Yellow's got to look themselves in the mirror and accept what they've done.
4: Well, I mean, the, I mean, the company is now again. I mean, they've filed. It, it looks like it's going to be an asset sale the trucks, the terminals, et cetera. But when Mark was here yesterday, Mark Kasowitz, he told me, in a paraphrasing, he said, at the last minute when they, meaning you uh, and your team, understood that Yellow had to file, uh, that union leadership called the company, this is over the weekend, uh, numerous times, try to get the company to make a deal. But at that point, Mark says it was too late to save the company.
9: The company reached out to us. We, w- we were meeting um, and the company wanted all kinds of changes that look the reality of it. They were so far in debt. No matter what happened. Uh, it it would have never worked. Um, and, you know it's like I said it's easy to blame someone else. Think about this. Our members gave back five billion dollars in pension and wage uh, wages since 2009. The company received 700 million dollars under the cares act for covid uh, under the Trump administration. And then Apollo Global uh, gave them another 600 million uh, a couple of years ago. So they couldn't even manage uh, what what they were given. Uh, And it's easy to blame everybody else. But you know you look back and see what our members sacrificed. You know the sad part about this whole thing is now through this liquidation. uh, We need we definitely need bankruptcy reform in this country because all those concessions and all the money and all the jobs lost and the obligation Uh, our union members, our union funds, uh, the last line of creditors. So everybody's going to reap, you know, the benefits of the liquidation, whether it's, you know, and I hope the CEO uh, has a little moral compass and doesn't take uh, any type of golden parachute because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, he's got to accept the consequences for what he did.
3: And so that was Sean O'Brien educating Fox News about what has actually happened. And, you know, I am certainly not holding my breath of uh, waiting for a CEO of a multi-billion dollar company to have a moral compass, uh, but hope springs eternal. And what she was saying is exactly what the host was saying is exactly what um, not only has the company been going with on TV, but they actually put these allegations in their official bankruptcy filing. Uh, it was pinned by <coughs> a former conservative Republican congressional candidate, uh, according to the American Prospect, who wrote an article about this, titled Yellow Scapegoats Teamsters for Apollo-Led Bankruptcy. Uh, and in that filing, the American Prospect says that the, uh, uh, the person who wrote it spins a tale about, quote, a plucky little company that was ritually executed by a power-mad union boss. uh, And so they allege Sean O'Brien, and here's a quote from the filing, quote, knowingly and intentionally triggered a death spiral for Yellow to teach a lesson to his more powerful rivals. And, you know, the despite no evidence for that and no reasoning for that, and so, he, th- you know, they say that he used Yellow, Sean O'Brien, as a sacrificial lamp to gain leverage against UPS. He also claimed that O'Brien deliberately prevented the company from, ab- from adopting the second phase of One Yellow, which was a restructuring program that Yellow put out. And Yellow claims that instead of complying with them, Yellow and the Teamsters made, quote, extra contractual demands. Yellow, in the company's telling, tried to accommodate the union, but the union was just simply too obstinate and would not ever make any concessions necessary to keep the company alive. So they say that by stalling phase two, O'Brien, quote, intended to weaken Yellow, scare off Yellow's customers, inhibit Yellow's ability to refinance its debt, and to generally erode market confidence in Yellow's ability to continue, All in service of gaining leverage uh, as the Teamsters' negotiations with UPS unfolds. And what the American Prospect does in this article is really great. And then I'm going to come in with some more context from an article from the Lever News, which this is all really fascinating and important stuff if you actually want to understand what's happened with Yellow the American prospect says left out of this narrative is the fact that phase two of one yellow likely would have translated to job losses, nor does the narrative try to explain why any union leader would deliberately vaporize 22,000 jobs from their own membership for any reason. Uh, and that's, at, you know, t- the idea that, that
4: seems to be the most damning right of all to me.
3: Yeah. If you're going to make the claim that, a union president is eliminating 22,000 jobs purposely, you're going to have to come with some receipts for that. And they do not. Here's some other information from the American Prospect. Labor costs actually dropped for Yellow, despite their claims that the Teamsters Union was just too greedy. And that was according, according to the company's own latest 10K forms. In the five years through 2022, as Yellow's competitor Old Dominion Freight Line made $4 billion in profit, Yellow suffered more than $200 million in losses. This despite the declining percentage of labor costs. And... uh it, it wasn't even just the non-union competitors uh, that were doing well. Sati- uh, Satish Jindal, pre- who is a president of a transportation and logistics consulting group, told the New York Times that another Teamsters represented competitor also stayed afloat. And he reiterated. So this is not like just a union guy. This is a transportation and logistics consulting group, right? So not, This is not, when you hear those words, you, these are not the most labor-friendly people he is saying that yellow suffered largely because of mismanagement and this mismanagement specifically is its string of acquisitions through the 2000s where they pitched subsidiaries it uh, where they pitched subsidiaries that they acquired and then owned to compete against one another right so these are two multiple companies that yellow is owning and they're pitching them against each other trying to make them compete with one another instead of trying to make them cooperate with one another These acquisitions that were not taken full advantage of by continuing to make them compete, these acquisitions were fueled by additional debt that then needed to be refinanced, which increased the pressure to cut costs, which would be borne on the backs of its mostly Teamster-represented workforce. And that is important to underscore, as Sean O'Brien did in that clip, that not only Where the Teamsters, it is not, not only is it just simply not true that the Teamsters were unwilling to make concessions, the Teamsters have made concessions, a bunch of concessions. Over the past five years, the Teamsters gave back what amounted to $5 billion in concessions to Yellow. $5 billion split between 22,000 employees. If you do the math, that is nearly a quarter million dollars per employee over the past five years okay so these workers have already sacrificed a lot for this company more than the bosses have certainly they've sacrificed for this company and Additionally, they got a lot of loans to try to, uh, uh, to try to refinance and try to make things better that they were not able to capitalize on. And that's not the union's fault because you, the workers are never asked about any of these financial decisions or management decisions or anything like that. Chris Townsend told the American Prospect that uh, the author of the bankruptcy fl- filing clearly does not understand how union contracts and negotiations work. He asserts that the union somehow understood and supported his one yellow scheme, which was purported to save the company. This is a personal attempt by uh, Doheny the author of the bankruptcy filing, to absolve himself for a mess that he joined mid-mess and could not manage. The Teamsters' General Secretary Treasurer, Fred Zuckerman, had similar sentiments, the American prospect reported. Quote, when mismanaged companies like Yellow cry about needing more flexibility to modernize, they're telling you that they want to take advantage of workers. That's exactly right. It's important to understand. And so I mentioned loans a little bit ago. Uh, And it's interesting learning about the source of these loans. Because the source of of one of these loans, two big loans, came from Apollo Global Management and then the federal government. So, uh, an Apollo Global Management is really set to get a lot of these financial assets. They're, They're looking pretty as this bankruptcy goes through. So... Uh, Backing up a little bit, Yellow received, this is from The Lever News, Yellow received a $700 million taxpayer-funded bailout from President Donald Trump in 2020, shortly before Apollo's co-founder and his wife donated a million dollars to Trump's re-election campaign. Pretty good return. Pretty good return. Uh, And so though Trump constantly depicts himself as a pro-worker populist, his administration's bailout of yellow was structured to permit Apollo to get paid back in a potential bankruptcy before the government. The result is that truckers now face mass layoffs and taxpayers could see hundreds of millions of dollars in losses all while the Trump donors Wall Street firm benefits from a government-funded cushion. And the loan terms that the Trump administration gave to Yellow were actually even more generous than Yellow had sought. So Yellow sought a loan from the government, and the government gave them an even better deal than they asked for. That's according to Congressional Oversight Committee records that the lever acquired and reviewed. Insane insane. And so uh, it's important to know, to understand why would the government do this? Apollo has significant ties to the Trump administration. Let's take a look at them. The Lever, I mean, this is some fantastic reporting by The Lever. I'm a a monthly donor to The Lever. And I I mean, y'all should be too. It's really, really good reporting. You're not going to get this really anywhere else. The, The Lever and the American Prospect, some of the best national publications out there. In 2017, Apollo loaned $184 million to Kushner Companies, the family real estate firm of Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor, to refinance a mortgage on a Chicago skyscraper. That loan came after Apollo co-founder Joshua Harris started advising the White House on infrastructure policy. That's interesting. The Trump Securities and Exchange Commission, chaired by finance industry lawyer Jay Clayton, dropped an investigation into Apollo weeks after the company extended the loan to Kushner. Hmm. After Trump left office, Clayton became the lead independent director of Apollo. Clayton, who, let's remember, was the chair of the Trump uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, who was supposed to regulate the financial industry. Immediately after that position, he got a job at the top of Apollo. When the pandemic hit, Apollo co-founder and now CEO Mark Rowan contacted Trump administration's uh, senior officials, including Kushner, seeking relaxed restrictions on a separate COVID relief program that could benefit Apollo. And then in September of 2020, Rowan and his wife donated $1 million to Trump Victory, a joint fundraising committee between Trump and the Republican National Committee. Apollo's third co-founder, Leon Black, was reportedly a personal acquaintance of Kushner. Black was recently accused of raping a young girl at now-deceased sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein's New York townhouse. Apollo and its subsidiaries spent $4.7 million lobbying the federal government in 2020, according to Open Secrets. Apollo partner John Bookout donated $85,000 to Trump victory in the 2020 cycle. New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft, who served on the Apollo board until 2021, donated $1 million from his Kraft Group LLC to the Trump Inaugural Committee in late 2016. And former Senator Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania, one of four members of the COVID Congressional Oversight Committee, Commission, set up to oversee pandemic relief spending, Spending joined Apollo's board in February after retiring from the Senate. The Oversight Commission's final report on yellow loans was released in June. So these are all the incestuous connections that Apollo had to the Trump administration, which I think we have every reason to believe is why the Trump administration would set up a loan such that they get compensated behind these financial industry ghouls and parasites so there you go folks yellow destroyed themselves management are the ones who killed yellow not the workers and additionally uh they got way more loans than they should have and they weren't able to capitalize on it so uh we are not here for blaming the workers at all uh, so we've got another guest. We've got uh, another couple of guests. These are going to be our last guests. And then we've got some more. Uh, we've got some stuff to uh, review about the UAW that we are really excited about. And that is uh, we are talking to Jacob Jones and uh, uh, Haley Zarnick. Are they both in the Zoom? They
4: are, yes.
3: Jacob Jones and Haley Zarnick. I asked them to come on the show today because uh, but the week before last, the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, had their national convention, and uh, Alabama, D- the Alabama DSA chapters had a delegation, and they were both on this delegation, and they are both union members. Uh, and them both being union members and being part of the Al- Alabama delegation meant that something like... 20 or 30% of the Alabama delegation is union members. So we were really excited about that. And there were a lot of really cool stuff that uh, DSA committed to do around labor in support of the labor movement. So we wanted to get them on to talk about that, union members in DSA who went to the national convention. So Haley, Jacob, thanks for joining the program. We appreciate it.
10: Thanks for having us. Excited to be here. Yeah, glad to be here.
3: Yeah, really, really uh, looking forward to hearing more about it. So, Haley, you are from Birmingham. You're in Birmingham DSA. Jacob is in North Alabama DSA. And y'all actually have a labor committee down in Birmingham, Haley. Can you talk to us about what some of your priorities were going into this convention as a member of Birmingham DSA's labor committee?
10: Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, for me, it was a priority to have a national level direction, because I think that we have been uh, in the Birmingham area sort of supporting every campaign that we can, but not necessarily with an eye towards what our long term goal is as the Labor Committee of Birmingham DSA is right, it's easy to say I want the Starbucks workers to win their union. I would, you know, love uh, for Amazon to have a successful campaign. Um, But figuring out what it's going to take to really win worker power and build worker militancy um, is sort of something different from just showing up on a picket line. Um, And I think we've found that out too, by seeing how some of how some of these fights have played out right it was pretty crushing end to the umwa strike um certainly have not seen our first union uh, amazon union in alabama although they did inspire the staten island union which is awesome um but i think uh for me i was really excited to figure out what uh priorities the national level organization had um and i think we're coming out of the convention uh, as an organization, feeling really optimistic and, and having articulated a pretty clear vision. Um, a couple of things that we've committed to are um, sort of recommitting to the rank and file strategy. So um, we know that union leaders don't always have the same views as the rank and file members. And we also know that we need uh, more rank and file union members. And so part of what we what we try and do is get DSA members to join unions and also make sure that we're in communication with as many union members as possible, not just folks that are, you know, Doing the press releases and, and on the news. Um, and we've also committed to doing um, local walk formations. Um, so if folks aren't familiar with UWAC, it's the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee. Um, it's a pretty historic collaboration between the Electrical Workers Union and DSA to provide some extra support for folks who are trying to organize uh, in places uh, where they may not have you know, pre-existing unions or folks to talk to. Um, and so that's part of how we got connected to the Starbucks fight here is that folks were coming to DSA looking for support um, as all of the incredible staff, Starbucks Workers United organization were absolutely overwhelmed with like hundreds of stores that were trying to get advice from them. So we got to be um, a little bit of extra support. Um, and the goal of the local Ewoks uh, would be to create smaller formations regionally that could do the same thing. Um, so that's a bit of my ramble. Uh, Jacob, uh, anything that I've missed there? Sorry to go on.
11: No, no, I think you hit everything uh, at a pretty, at a pretty good level um, and, and really, uh, Birmingham DSA y'all have been doing great work on the labor front, um, North Alabama. We're really just getting started. We came in with the, uh, strike ready campaign that, uh, was supporting the UPS workers. Um, so we're a little new to the game, but, uh, we're, we're coming on strong. Um, and, uh, definitely all of the, uh, national priorities and everything, just supporting uh, rank and file stuff, the emergency worker, uh, organizing, um, big priorities, uh, we're going to integrate all of that in for North Alabama, um, and, uh, build that into our labor committee from the start. So hopefully, you know, we have a clear direction from the beginning to work from and, uh, bring people in to help assist. So
3: Jacob, I, I think that, uh, I, I may be wrong, but I, I think you're, a, a relatively newer member to DSA and my understanding viewing from afar is, is that this convention was, kind of uniquely uh, unifying for the membership of DSA and people left kind of more hopeful than they ever have following a convention. I actually remember people that I knew in DSA feeling leaving the convention less hopeful and more dejected than they came to the convention. And a lot of some of the reasons that I've heard for that is the labor stuff. How do you feel? Does that does that kind of track with your experience, Haley?
10: Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I thought we were going to Jacob. But yeah, I think so, for sure. This was my first convention. Um, and I will tell you, I came in really anxious, um, particularly as a Southern organizer. Um, I, I always worry that the vibe is going to be, you know, folks in, in socialist strongholds sort of, mm. uh, you know, quizzing me on how good my reading has been and, <laughs> and whether or not my priorities align with theirs. Um, and that's not even remotely what it was like. Uh, I, I had an amazing time. And so my anxiety very quickly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, sort of fell away as I got to meet a lot of my comrades for the first time in person. Um, I thought it was incredible. I think we figured out a lot of the internal democracy uh, and have a really, really solid, uh, you know, sort of structure for making sure that debate is heard. Um, And people are committed to hearing that debate too, right? So there would be times where it seemed pretty clear that we had, um, you know, a building consensus on something, but we wouldn't vote, uh, you know, to call the question and move on because there were still folks that wanted to speak again or wanted to speak for, even if that wasn't the consensus. And I think we're a much stronger organization when we hear those folks out. Um, so I was really proud of that. Um, how did you feel, Jacob? I, 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 My first convention, but I'm still fairly new, so I'm curious.
11: Yeah, uh, obviously my first convention too, uh, North Alabama DSA just became a recognized chapter at the beginning of this year. Uh, I came into uh, DSA last year after the Dobbs decision. It just, I don't know why that was the thing that just hit me i was like that's the first like recognizable thing to me after i started like really paying attention that uh kind of like i was like wow that's an actual loss of rots that's what can happen if you don't organize against this and so i came in um just thrown to the wolves immediately because <laughs> like, they're like hey you're saying stuff so be the secretary so yeah, I I just kind of jumped in and so uh coming off the off of that and getting us to chapter status uh I it was easiest for uh us to go and and be the delegate and I made, we we voted on it and everything and uh so yeah first first time being there um and yeah I would really say that uh the the solidarity there was great especially compared to what I've heard and I heard at there by other uh, people who had been delegates before, there were some very uh, divisive ones in the past. I think 2019 was apparently particularly troubling. But uh, I, I think in 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 the midst of all the, uh, the labor surge and everything, it, it really has been a unifying force in DSA. And it, it started seeming real and achievable. And I think it really brought people in. And, and coming off the back of, uh, you know, uh, some of the losses last summer and everything, like I mentioned, it brought me in. Uh, it just, everybody came with a good attitude of wanting to get things done and not being divisive. And I, I think that that was, that was really helpful. And yeah, on the, uh, on the debate side, uh, we really came together, like just us all talking, let's hear these people out. Let's debate that's what we're here for. And, uh, there was, you know, rarely, if ever a time where we were like, all right, uh, this is, we, we're, we're, we're all filling the room here. Like we're ready to vote on this. And in, in those cases, it was like a 99% yes vote. So, you know, uh, it, it was, it was really reassuring, uh, really reaffirming of our cause. Um, and yeah, great, great experience.
3: So, Jacob, in your mind, what were the what were some of the highlights uh, on the labor side? What were some of the resolutions and commitments that DSA made uh, around that issue that that you're most excited about?
11: Yeah, um, definitely uh, the recommitment to the rank and file stuff uh, like Haley mentioned, and also the emergency organizing. um, Just because. Whenever it's nice to know that Nationals committed to that uh because it can feel a little bit like you're twisting out in the wind when you don't have uh like like it feels like everybody every chapter is just kind of they got their own different approach to things there's no real consensus on the rod approach and just kind of coming to that uh i guess uh democratic centralism or whatever approach to things or whatever we, we voted on this and this is the way forward it's uh it's just really like empower well we have a real direction and having direction is a large part of the battle and uh yeah we know where we're gonna we're gonna support and what we're gonna build into our uh into our sport structure
10: yeah and just to add on to that i think um that unifying around labor has been useful for us uh beyond just thinking about what we want to win for for workers in their workplace <laughs> i think um Our main lever of power as workers to get, you know, for instance, talking about jobs to make sure that our reproductive rights are protected um, is through our unions, right? If we build strong fighting unions, it's not just about what we can get in that contract. It's also about what we can fight to get our workplaces uh, to do more broadly in terms of, you know, our our greater landscape of rights. Um, And so I think that's something that was woven through a lot of uh, different pieces of or different resolutions i guess that we considered um and so yeah, I think that is a huge reason why why we were so unified at this convention is that we're starting to see ourselves as workers, um, and and really claim that power, not as outside organizers. And I think that's something we've struggled with in our labor committee um, when it comes to Starbucks, UMWA, Amazon. Is we're here to support, you know, we're here to do whatever you can, but we're not here as you know workers in our workplaces to you know exercise our strongest lever of power. Um, and so I think that's a shift that we're making that's really positive is yes we want to continue to show up on picket lines yes we want to provide whatever fundraising or support we can for uh folks that are you know not in our workplaces that are taking awesome actions to organize um but we also want to really really recognize our power as workers
3: did the dsa labor commission do they have a full-time paid organizer now yes
10: yes (laughs) yes uh, Amanda Weems, who is incredible, uh, from Texas, and she's come down to visit us. Um, We've also just passed a resolution to have national political leadership Mm. full-time, which will be because uh, I think a lot of times what happens is the messaging gets out based on whoever has the easiest access to the press. And right. so having actual full-time paid staff that can, you know, make sure that that our viewpoints are being represented in, in a way that makes sense is exciting. So yeah, we've got our our labor organizer and we've got uh, more staff incoming, which which we're really excited about, I think.
3: Love that the labor organizer comes from the South. That's that's really cool. Oh, yeah. um, and so the one of the one of y'all's priorities going forward or, or the the next big kind of national campaign is going to be uh the uh, of course y'all are still standing ready to support in, a, in, in through your strike ready campaign UPS workers if they vote down this contract and they end up going on a strike but the the organization hasn't taken a stance on whether UPS workers should vote yes or no right
10: Correct.
11: Yeah, Yeah, that's correct. We leave that with the workers.
3: And so the the next uh, uh the, the next big national campaign that you can definitely predict is going to be the strike ready campaign to support the UAW workers as they uh, go to a potential strike on September the 14th. What is going to what is that going to entail? What are you all going to be doing in that campaign?
10: That's a great question. <laughs> we're still thinking about it. So, we um, to give a little background on the Strike Ready campaign that came directly out of the UPS contract negotiations. So, I'm mm-hmm. sure all of your listeners know they've been, uh, you know, in negotiations for some time. There were plans to potentially strike, and we're now in the process of voting on a tentative agreement. And so, as we sort of wait to see how that shakes out, um, we are, I think in a holding pattern to figure out where a lot of our energy is going to go. Um, but I imagine that a lot of what we've decided to do for the UPS strike ready campaign will carry over to to UAW. And so that's um, just making sure we're visible. Right. So um, mm-hmm. something that uh, Chris with our chapter did, um, is create little, um, is print out little like strike ready cards and getting people to mm-hmm. sign it. I think a lot of other chapters did that as well. Um, so, you know, making sure that people can see that we're together, um, in solidarity with them, um, but also getting ready to figure out where the picket lines are, making contact with organizers so that we've got those relationships, figuring out where we, we where we can fundraise, um, and, uh, you know, where those funds will be most appropriately spent. All of those kinds of things are ways that we can't Actually, support as outside organizers um we have also tried to get folks to you know for instance work for UPS but after Mm -hmm. a certain amount of time right they're no longer able to vote anyways um so I don't I don't know the timing on UAW but theoretically um that's that's always a possibility as well
3: yep and you know even if you're not obviously if you go work for UPS today you're not going to be able to vote on the tentative agreement but uh there's going to be a big you know uh, there's my understanding is that in the Teamsters, there's going to be a big campaign to enforce the contract after after it's implemented and hold local bosses accountable. And so, even if you're not going to be able to vote on the tentative agreement. Uh, there's still a lot of work to do as a teamster in UPS to make sure uh, that because because UPS uh, bosses violate the contract all the time is my understanding and bosses everywhere in any union workplace. So you know you got to be a, you you, you got to be active uh, even outside of contract negotiations. And in fact, honestly, that's even that's that's as or more important because people more it's just like an election season. People are more likely to be activated. During contract negotiations, just like during election season, and so when you're outside of those, uh, when when you're outside of those kind of peaks of activity, the the valleys, it's that much more important to have watchdogs. Uh, so, so definitely, yeah, if I'm- you're in DSA and and you're thinking about joining UPS, uh, uh, working at UPS, don't not work for UPS because the contract negotiations are over. <laughs>
10: And I'd say the same thing for Starbucks, too, right, Mm -hmm. is, you know, you get part of the struggle with the legal framework that we have set up for for labor rights in this country is that it creates a lot of loopholes for people to join uh, and and create a recognized union. Um, And so I think a lot of our like sort of militant labor energy gets sucked up trying to prove to the NLRB that, Mm -hmm. yes, we have a union meets whatever criteria you've set out for our bargaining unit. Um, and there's a whole lot that comes after that, right? Like mm. that's not, that's not the building power part. That's just literally proving to the NRB, like we count, um, right. based on your definitions. And so there's so much more to do after that. And I think it's really, really difficult sometimes to maintain momentum when you're like, well, we got the win we were going for now. what? Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really important.
3: Yeah, fun fact, uh, nothing happens after you win a union election, basically. (laughs) You you win a union election, you don't get a raise, you don't get uh, health benefits, you don't get more time off. You got to win a contract for that. So that's once you win a union election, you're ready to fight. Is the Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Haley, Jacob, really appreciate y'all taking the time. Uh, Was really excited about having union members represent Alabama at the DSA National Convention. Is there anything else that uh, you think would be important to share with our listeners?
11: If you're listening and you haven't joined DSA yet, I would uh, say you should join. <laughs> Especially if you're in North Alabama, we could use a lot of help. Oh, in Birmingham, sorry.
10: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'm in Tuscaloosa and part of the Birmingham chapter, so I will throw that out there. Um, I think that we've also uh, really concretized our electoral strategy in a way that is increasingly independent, which is mm-hmm. very exciting to me because I have not seen Alabama Democrats support the labor movement. And so mm-hmm. for folks who feel like they would like to see some stronger uh, you know, voices in our electoral politics, I also think that DSA is uh, becoming uh, increasingly a political home for folks who feel sh- shut out by Democrats and by Republicans. So I would just echo that. Uh, we welcome folks to join. Uh, we're looking forward to building a strong uh, socialist movement in Alabama.
3: Haley, Jacob, thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it.
10: Thanks so much. Thanks.
3: All right. So I mentioned the UAW and, uh, and we're going to talk about that because last week we talked about uh, Sean Fain's uh, the The members' demands that he pre- he presented to the big three automakers, including Stellantis. And so this week, he has gotten some of the responses uh, to the members' demands. And uh, folks, they're not great. They're not great. So he went on a live stream on Tuesday of, of last week and talked about and read off from the company proposal what they wanted their workers to have to go through. So let's play this first clip of Sean Fain.
1: Stellantis has passed over a list of initial proposals that are riddled with givebacks. It's amazing to me that I open this first page here, and the first highlighted item here is absenteeism. You know, it's a pathetic irony that Carlos Tavares can't bother to show up to bargaining and that Mark Stewart, CEO, was late uh, showing up to the first opening of bargaining and, 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 and as they move forward, they want to talk about absenteeism with our workers. You know, uh, you know, another part of this, you know, we have to reflect about, you know, we hear about absenteeism all the time. And this is something that really pisses me off when I hear these companies keep beating this to death. We are the most overworked country in the world. Our members, our workers in the United States put in more hours than any country in the world.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's important. So that that po- point that he said about absenteeism is very important, and they put out some numbers about that, and, and so Stellantis said, or maybe it was GM, they said, we have lost, get ready for this, it's a big number, $217 million because of absenteeism. And so, wow, you hear that number and you think, man, that is a lot of money that Stellantis claims to have lost. Uh, that's crazy. And so the thing that you should do after that uh if you are you know uh remotely inquisitive or critical of uh bosses is i wonder what their revenue was and actually if you take a look at their revenue i can't remember what the number was it was some billions tens of billions hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue and so if you divide that $200 million that they claim to have lost, which, I mean, that's just a claim. That could just be a lie. But even if we take it at face value, if you divide that by their total revenue, they lost zero like zero eight percent of their total revenue to absenteeism, quote unquote. And so that's a silly thing to be concerned about if you are the big three. But to the extent that absenteeism is an issue... One of the reasons for absenteeism, it would be because they pay so many of their temporary and second-tier workers so much less. For example, the starting wage at Ultium, which is a battery manufacturer, is $16 an hour with a top-out of $20 an hour after seven years, okay? So, uh, you know, you make that little money. Uh, Without and that's as a temporary employee and you make that little money without all the benefits, then maybe, you know, you're going to be absent sometimes, right? (laughs) You're maybe not going to be as motivated to come to work, Uh, reasonably, reasonably so. And so, and then obviously you got to take into account exactly like Sean Fain said, American workers put in more hours every week than any other industrialized country. And we have got to turn that back. We've got to take back more freedom from the boss uh, because we have allowed them to steal too much of our time. So we have to take it back. And Sean Fain is really kind of leading the charge. Uh, You know, the Teamsters, uh, there, there were, like I said, there were a lot of wins, but they really, you know, there were some things that were left on the table. And I think that time off is a big thing that they really didn't fight that much for. And Sean Fain is coming out swinging for a 32-hour work week for 40 hours of pay. And that's really important. That's doable. And uh, and they deserve it. And additionally, when they're talking about absenteeism, he mentioned that the CEO, CEO did not show up to the initial bargaining and the COO was late to the initial bargaining and then after the initial bargaining the COO Mark Stewart went to his second home in Mexico where he has been for the last two weeks where he has sent letters to the UAW telling them in the negotiations that they should be quote focusing on reality. So I don't think it's realistic. For these executives to make tens of millions of dollars and have second homes and have the time during negotiations to take two-week vacations, I don't think that's realistic, frankly. Anyway, let's, th- let's go to the second clip from Sean Fain. There's some more that Stellantis is wanting to take from these people.
1: In a sad reality of this and what they proposed, rather than taking seriously our demand to eliminate tears, Stellanus proposed a creation of new ones. You know, when I, when I flow through here, you know, instead of getting to work on negotiating the significant wage gains of our members that, that they've earned and, and deserve, Stellanus is threatening our profit-sharing formula. We propose the reestablishment of retiree medical benefits for all workers. Stellanus has proposed cuts to our existing medical coverage. We propose more paid time off for workers to spend with their family and friends. Stellanus has proposed the elimination of the holiday conversion option, fewer vacation days for new hires, and less choice of when we can take vacation. They've also proposed to expand their right to force members to work overtime. Stellanus has proposed cuts to their 401 k contribution, gutting the transfer rights based on seniority. They've also proposed eliminating the moratorium on outsourcing. They've also proposed to eliminate the cap on the use of temporary employees and have disrespected our trades with proposals that would make it easier to outsource more of our work. Stellanus even had the nerve to demand the unilateral right to demand further concessions during the life of the contract and for the union to allow the company to make those changes without a vote of our membership. That is some pretty galling proposals
3: from the company. Again, let's remember in years of record profits, we talked about when Sean Fain introduced his members' demands, uh, he went over the company's profits and talked about how they have literally never made more money, never made more money in the history of the company. And in this time of record profits, they are still trying to take from the employees. I've got one more clip of uh, of these proposals from Stellantis. So let's get that.
1: Just a few more things I highlighted. You know, uh, increase the number of pay periods required to work to, to work for full vacation entitlement. So now, not just the 26 weeks you got to get in a year, they want you to work more weeks to qualify for your full vacation allotment. Um, they want to create a no-fault based absenteeism system where they can punish workers more. Um, company has the ability to schedule mandatory vacation shutdowns without restriction on duration, timing, notice, and cancellation criteria. Uh, They want to reduce the company's notification requirements for modifying shift start times. They want to enable supervisors to perform bargaining unit work. But, you know, the biggest one to me was this issue about adding a new letter, establishing the ability to reopen and bargain provisions of our agreements that don't require ratification.
3: Yeah crazy stuff here by management of Stellantis. And uh, so uh, Sean Fain reacted reasonably to, the, uh, to these proposals. Let's see what he did.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters, when we get things like this from the company and they want to sit there and talk about they're not as- asking for concessions or looking for concessions, everything they're looking for in this document is about concessions. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do with with their proposal. I'm going to file it in its proper place. that's where it belongs, the trash. Because that's what it is.
3: All right, there we go. I liked that little animation that Joe did. But that, I mean, that's exactly right. That's where that belongs. Um, You know, (laughs) it's the gall of them to try to steal more money from these people after so long of of these workers giving concessions. Sean Fain also did a live stream with Bernie on Thursday night. I believe it was with a couple of UAW members. And one woman talked about how they have these periods of 90 days. The company is allowed to call, uh, uh to, to, to call these periods in 90 days where they have to work every day without a day off for 90 days, seven days a week, 12 hours a day for 90 days. And you can't take off or uh, take a day off, go to church, uh, take your, you know, uh, anything that happens with your kids. You can't, can't go to it. You can't take time off or you'll be reprimanded and disciplined, potentially terminated. 90 days. I mean, that's insane. And they're wanting more authority to take time away from people. It's just disgusting, really, what's going on with these companies. And, uh, and, and we're, we're looking forward to seeing the UAW win these, uh, whether they have to strike or not. Um, uh, uh, they obviously deserve every, every single thing that they're asking for. So uh, we're going to continue to talk about that as these negotiations continue. Um, and last week, we showed you a, a clip of Jim Cramer. Last week, we showed you a clip of Jim Cramer reacting to uh, Sean Fain's members' demands, his presentation of the members' demands. And so he again reacted to Sean Fain this week, where uh, he reacted to Sean Fain throwing Stellantis' proposal in the trash. And he just, I mean, he continues like, wetting the bed about this kind of stuff. I don't doubt that he wakes up in a cold sweat thinking about yelling Sean Fain's name. I mean, it's crazy. This guy has clearly, yeah, Fain is living rent-free in this guy's head. Let's take a look at what Jim Cramer said last week on CNBC.
0: Uh, I want you to compare the labor negotiations here to the ones in auto, where I think there's going to be a strike, and I think it's going to be horrible.
2: You're making that call September
0: 14th think they're going to strike uh this the man uh sean Fain, the guy who runs the uaw i find him frightening
2: and and teamsters ups didn't give you any solace
0: but teamsters turned out to be uh get a good deal uh teamsters historically very powerful union rich union uh but-
3: yeah and notice how he said you know i'm scared of sean Fain. This UAW is frightening, and that's why they're going going to go on strike. No, no, no. no. That's not what's going to happen. If they go on strike, it's going to be, be because these companies are not respecting the people who produce the value, <laughs> who create the value that these people are stealing. That's why they would go on strike. They're not going to go on strike because, oh, this UAW is scary. Oh, Sean Fain is scary. If they go on strike, it's going to be because the big three are not respecting their workers and not giving them what they deserve. That's and, and that's what he should be saying. That should be his message because UAW members are not listening to this weirdo on CNBC, right? It's a business network. Who is his audience? The UAW executives. They have all the power in the world to prevent a strike. They've just got to give the UAW what they're asking for. And there'd be no reason for a strike. They're going to be the ones who strike themselves if a strike happens. But he's trying to place the blame on the workers. Let's continue.
0: But the, the UAW leader won. There was a contested, very contested vote between the company, the union that wants to work for, with the autos together to try to preserve some jobs and give the elder uh, people a good, good pay. And then this man, Sean, who is just talking about capitalism and the nature of capitalism and how it's really hurt workers. This is very Walter Ruther uh, language. It's a, uh, it, it's the kind of language that when we, when we had in this country, uh, we'll take you down if you don't play ball. That's the language I'm hearing from UAW. Yep. And look, I mean, it's the kind of language where you just say, you know what, we should have built all our EVs in Mexico. It's that bad. I don't think people are paying enough attention. The man is, I'm not saying he's irrational. I'm saying he was elected sure. in order to make it so that there's a very short week to find benefit back. And, and then the-
3: See, I mean, the idea, he was just astonished at the idea that workers would have security in their retirement. You know, that's totally that's reasonable. Shocking. <laughs> Every worker should have, security in their retirement we should not be left at the whims of the market when we retire but that's what he wants that's what he wants um there was another guy that we uh we played a clip of last week that uh we have learned some more about in the in the week since from our friends over at left reckoning uh matt leck and david griscom Uh, And it's pretty funny stuff considering what their commentary on the UPS workers. I'm talking about Patrick Bet David, and you'll remember that he was so just appalled at the idea that, that UPS workers would make $49 an hour. And now he said that today the average UPS worker makes $49 an hour, which is not true. The $49 an hour figure is what UPS drivers will be making at the top of the progression after four or five years. Uh, at the end of the contract in 2028. So, you know, I mean, this guy is, uh, in addition to being a ghoul is just no research, not interested in, in actually being correct on anything, but, uh, and, you know, so we commented on how one of the things that we said was that the idea that somebody like him in a position like his would be criticizing people who actually have a productive job, (laughs) who actually contribute to society. Um, the idea that they get paid much while he just, he is a literal professional opinion haver, right? And so there's, uh, I, I think most people would consider that absurd, uh, but it's even more absurd than that. And, and Matt Leck is going to talk about it here. Let's listen to that.
8: I will say, I find it, there's a little bit of, um, to me, it's like financial services, whatever you're buying and selling. And I don't want somebody who uh, makes a lot of money buying and selling telling the people who actually make the things that are being bought and sold how much they deserve. Mm -hmm. I think you should shut the fuck up and be happy with what you've broken off with. Um, But it turns out that it's actually maybe even a little bit darker than that, because as I I shared the name Parasite Bet David, more and more people are saying it, um, people got into my mentions with, actually, he's an MLM guy. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that, my ears pricked up.
9: Fight and for your there's, family.
8: There's a guy, Coffeezilla. I believe this is excerpted um, uh, uh, clips of a Coffeezilla expose of, of PBD. And they had like a, the whole back and forth. This this person, Awalabi uh, uh, Aziz, did a, a sort of a breakdown of it. So I just want to share a little bit of this. And I'll just repeat what I said, like, Parasite. You talk about people that are working fucking hard, man, and you're going to go in your air-conditioned studio? Look, I do this for a living. Um, I'm not about to come and say the guy who delivered this mm. uh, it needs to be paid less, okay? <laughs> anyway.
3: Yeah, and so then they play this video from CoffeeZilla. I'd recommend y'all going and watching Left Reckoning's video and then CoffeeZilla's video, but they just explain how one of the... Uh, primary ways that he made his money was by setting up this scheme for to get people to be quote life insurance salespeople. And so you had to pay like $250 to get the life insurance. And then you had to pay more money to take this test uh, to become a licensed life insurance salesperson. And one of the people who did this talked in this video about how Uh, when I was studying for this test, the people who told him to take the test were constantly telling him, you know, hey, you don't have to don't worry about studying too hard for this. You only have to make 60%. You really don't, you know, it it really doesn't matter. You just got to make 60% and then you'll be able to pass and you can be a life insurance salesman and all this. And uh, th- they just did not set them up to succeed. And the reason was that uh, it was set up like a pyramid scheme. So every life insurance salesperson that you signed up, you got like a cut of what, <laughs> of how much they paid to be a life insurance salesman and on and on and so uh it is really parasitic kind of stuff that he made his money on um and so you know i mean the gall of somebody who made their money like that uh to criticize people who work for a living is pretty astounding um I sent a, uh, <laughs> I sent them a note <laughs> on their website saying that I would be willing to come on the show and talk to them and that their audience might be interested. It might be a nice change of pace for their audience to hear from a worker, somebody who's repre- who has been elected to represent workers instead of just podcasters and politicians. So, uh, you know, not really holding my breath. But uh, if he pays for me to fly out to Miami, I'm more than willing to go. <laughs> I don't blame you. Well stay tuned yeah stay tuned we'll keep you we'll keep you posted folks um we have we've got one more clip but do we need to wrap adam i know that you've got stuff to do this afternoon
4: yeah uh what you got what, what would you, what were you yeah wanting well, to talk it, about? well
3: it, it, it'll be quick and it, it's this jonah goldberg clip on cnn jonah goldberg he's oh, no not jonah goldberg <laughs> he's a republican but he's among
4: a, other things.
3: Yeah, among other things. But he's a he's a reasonable Republican. Uh, compa- is is that um, what they're calling him? That's what they're calling him. Never Trumpers. Uh, you know, they just they want to you know drink your blood from your skull, but they don't. They're not going to send mean tweets. Is basically you know that's these people. And so he was on CNN talking about the scourge. Of small dollar donors in political races. This is just a fascinating thing that I have never heard anybody have the audacity to say on TV. Like, people heard him say this. He said this knowing people were listening to him. It's just amazing. So, uh, let's let's listen to what he had to say on CNN, on TV, where people could hear him. Alright, let's hope this is um, the right one.
2: But I just also think that we were dealing with a time where for a lot of people. There was a there was a lot of cheering and and self congratulation about the rise of small donors a decade ago, and now small donors are actually one of the biggest problems for democracy for the GOP because um, small donor large donors actually Wait, did he say have yeah, a strategic view about moderation I mean, who can win who can't and then you're gonna small want to donors really are just venting really, their spleen with yeah, their really credit card
3: uh, bits of gold for yeah lot- you heard him right he said that. One of the biggest threats to democracy is small dollar donors <laughs> okay, so I mean that's a take right there's you know that's an opinion that that's a, he that's a hot take that that because we live in America, he is entitled to, so you know. Happy for the First Amendment, but it also produces some trash.
4: <laughs> yeah, I want to hear his yes. rush now here.
3: Yeah, yeah. So let's rewind it so we make sure we get that, because we talked over some gold there that you're going to love.
2: A lot of people, there was, a, there was a lot of cheering and and self-congratulation about the rise of small donors a decade ago. And now small donors are actually one of the biggest problems for democracy, for the GOP, because um, small donor large donors actually... I have a strategic view about moderation, who can win, who can't. Small donors really are just venting their spleen with yep. their credit card and um, and they lock candidates into positions that can hurt them in the general election.
10: Such an important point.
3: Such an um, important point! I,
2: I just
3: also... By CNN! That's a CNN host. CNN I thought was supposed to be the libs. Wild.
4: Well, it's because you don't think with a strategic view.
3: Yeah, right. I'm not moderate enough. And that's why I shouldn't be allowed to donate to Camelot. I mean, what is even the solution to that, right? If if small dollar donors are a problem, presumably he thinks there should be a solution. Well, if I had big
4: dollars, I'd be a big dollar (laughs) donor. (laughs) There's a solution. He could give me some money.
3: Yeah. And I I could donate,
4: you know, strategically for him. Yeah.
3: (laughs) What would even be the solution to that? Like you can't, you can only donate in increments of $5,000 to campaigns. I mean, what's the deal? What's the thing that he wants to happen here to, to make it more difficult for working people to fund candidates that they want to see elected. That's just some, I mean, that's a really kind of mask off moment, right? Another example of just contempt that these people have for people like us. If we're not in the elite, if we don't live in D.C. or New York or California, and we don't have a fancy finance or media job, then we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't have, a, we shouldn't have a vote. We shouldn't be able to spend money on elections. We got to leave that stuff to our betters, right? They know more than us. The people, the people that that run the world, who make money because they have money. You know they just know more than us, and that's why uh, that's why it's a meritocracy, don't you know? That's why that's why they're at the top is because uh, they're better than us.
4: Such an important point.
3: (laughs) That's really wild. I could not believe that. You know when it because I was I was watching that clip on Twitter, and I was already you know my jaw was at the floor by the end of his statement. And then it just got dislocated when the CNN host chimed in. Such an important point. I could not believe that. Although I don't know why I was so surprised, but, you know, you would think that they would at least have to try to keep up some sort of veneer of being, like, liberal or or at least moderate. You know, at least I'm not a total insane ghoul, you know, bought and paid for by corporations. But it it, it be what it be, I guess. Uh yeah, so that's it. That's all I had to say. Um that's the last clip. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about, Adam? No. <laughs> <laughs> How all about right. that? All right. Yeah. I hate we, we had scheduled a uh we had scheduled a comedian to come on today. Uh to come in studio today and it didn't work out. Fans the plans kinda of fell apart, and today would have been a really good day to have a comedian on board, I think. But we have we always we always have next time. So, uh, folks, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and wrap up. We appreciate y'all listening. Uh, make sure you find us online, tvlr.fm. Bookmark that page. Sign up for our newsletter. Uh, buy our new merch. We're gonna be closing pre-orders on that new join a union shirt soon. So buy it, tvlr.fm/slash merch. If you're not a monthly donor to the program, please consider doing that if you're financially able. tvlr.fm/slash donate. Become a monthly automatic recurring donor. Uh, donor. And that'll help us keep the show on the air and keep, uh, keep paying our people and keep doing what we do. So, um, yeah, I think that's it. With that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for listening.